All right, so as we're in Ephesians 5, last week, verses 1 through 14 that Seth led us through, I saw three specific things that we're commanded to do. There's some things that we're commanded to do in a negative sense that we're to put off, but there's some positive things that we're commanded to do that we're to walk in. And three things that I counted were that we are to imitate God, we're to walk in light, and we're to awake from slumber. Paul likes to work in groups of three, and we're going to see a lot of that this morning. And then in verses 15 through 21, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so Paul starts this passage with, look carefully how you walk. And then he gives us three contrasts. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as foolish, but having understanding. Not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. These are three contrasts that he gives us. And this final one, don't be drunk, might seem kind of arbitrary. But he's not pulling on just a random sin and focusing in on it. But drunkenness, I believe, encapsulates what it means to not be careful how you walk. To walk as one who is unwise and one who is foolish. And beyond that, to squander your life, to squander your time, this beautiful gift that God has given you. And there's certainly no redemptive value to drunkenness, right? So nobody here is going to look at someone who is drunk and think, that's someone I need to glean some wisdom from. Right? You're not going to walk up to them with your tablet and say, man, this foolish person right here, everything he says I want to write down. I want to know from him. The only reason you might is if there's a specific answer that you're looking for. Right? We all tend to go to people who tell us what we want to hear. Right? Yeah, do it. Great, I'm going to do it. No, we wouldn't look at any of these people and think that there's wisdom or understanding in them. And there's also something else happening here in the context. You see, this is a Gentile, pagan world that the Ephesians are coming out of. It's all that they knew. And within that world, there was the worship of many deities, many different gods. One of those gods was Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine. So any guess here on how you might worship a god of wine? You get drunk, right? No hallelujahs or amens. I'm glad. Uh, I was a little bit worried this morning, so we're off to a good start. They would get drunk. They would get inebriated, and they thought that as they did that, they were reaching a type of spiritual euphoria, like tapping into, no pun intended, tapping into the spiritual world. And, and this was mostly men at the time, and so following the drunken euphoria, they would begin to create songs and chants, things that we see here that we are to do also, but in the spirit. And after this drunkenness, there was other types of gross immorality. Now, in our culture, 
people aren't running to worship Dionysus necessarily, right? Most of you, it's the first time you're hearing that name. But I thought of a couple of reasons why people might seek drunkenness in our culture. And a couple of reasons why I think people might seek, seek this state. And by the way, the Bible doesn't condemn the use or consumption of alcohol, but it does condemn it, the use of excessive use, sorry, drunkenness. And so why are some reasons why people might seek drunkenness in our culture today? I think one of the first is to escape trouble, problems, stress, anxieties, heartache. Maybe you've gone through something difficult and it's hard to go to the Lord for, for counsel and for healing. The easier thing to do is to run to a bottle. And the other reason perhaps someone might seek drunkenness is just to, to tap into who they really are, right? I wanna get down to the bottom of who Robbie is. I wanna know what I really think, what I really feel, as alcohol has been called the great truth serum throughout history, right? The problem with both of these is that they might promise freedom and liberation, but in fact, they, they don't give you that. Because after the hangover is gone, your problems are still there. They still persist. You might have been numbed from reality for a period, but you still have to either face the problem the next day or run to another drink in this vicious cycle that the Bible warns us against. Or if you did tap into your true self and you were able to get down to what you really feel, you're likely not happy with what you saw. Usually it's followed with shame, not anything that you feel good about. But here's the good thing, is that the gospel offers us a better freedom, a perfect freedom that's found only in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Later on, same chapter, verses 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what we see in scripture is that freedom is not the selfish, reckless, wielding of our, our cravings, our indulgences, or sharing of our opinions. That's not what biblical freedom is. Freedom is a sober, calculated, laying down of our lives for the good of others. That's biblical freedom. It's, it's freedom from the bonds of sin. It's freedom from Robbie's indulgences, my selfish, fleshly desires freedom from myself and freedom to love God, freedom to love Christ and freedom to love his people, freedom to love the world around me, to get out of myself. My question this morning for me and for us is, is my Christianity primarily focused on just me? Am I so concerned with my own self? And there is an element of our Christian walk that is private. We should seek 
to be alone with the Lord. We need to be alone with the Lord and devote ourselves to him, to hear from him in his word. But are you also, in those times, so moved by Jesus' love for you, towards you, that you're filled to the point where you gotta share it with someone else? The way that Jesus has loved me, I gotta go and give it back to somebody. We, we live, and I'm fighting this too, we live in an individualistic culture. And if we're not careful, we can over-individualize our Christian walk. Are we concerned with our neighbor? Are we concerned with the people around us about their eternity, about their brokenness? Do we desire to take what we've been given in Christ to the world around us? As we see here, when Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit, he gives us, you would guess it, three ways in which that might look. Three characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. And spoiler alert, they're all outward expressions. First off, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord from your heart. It sounds like what we just did, right? As Bo led us in worship, we were singing to the Lord. There was also an element in which we were singing to each other, right? All creatures here on earth sing. Come all ye faithful. We're singing to each other. We're encouraging one another in the Lord to worship. That's what he's talking about here. Secondly, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to me, I think you have to have a really robust theology to thank God for everything in life. It takes a robust theology to thank God when we're walking through trials and through tribulations. And I don't know that this text is actually saying that we thank God for the tragedy that comes into our life, but we certainly thank him that he is the God who walks with us through tragedy, through fire, through tribulation, that he does not leave nor forsake us ever, believer. And beyond that, it takes a robust theology to trust that in his infinite wisdom, God is working good for us through the tragedy. And there are times in my walk with the Lord where had it not been for that promise in Romans 8, he works all things for good for those who love him and are called to his purpose, I don't know how I would have gotten through. But somehow, clinging to the promise of God and his word, I trust that this will be for good and for your glory one day, even if I don't see it. I trust you in it. Finally, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to God-given authority. The Greek word here for submit is hypotasso. It was a military term that meant to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. It was also used outside of the military and when used in that way, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in for the sake of order. 
And so there is a biblical sense in which you and I are called to look to everyone else as more important than us. That is the humility of Christ that we as believers are called to emulate, right? I'm not after Robbie's desire. I'm not after my will. I should be after everyone else's well-being, laying my own self aside to pursue the good of those around me. That is a biblical Christ-like mindset we're all called to have. However, that does not negate the fact that God has given us order in society. He's given authorities throughout the world. And we see that in scripture, in society, as governments are given to us to enforce justice, in society to provide protection. That's a God-given institution for our good, authority. Pastors and elders are called to lead and to feed the sheep of God. Husbands are told to love and nurture their wives as we're about to see. Fathers are called to admonish their children. These are all ways in which God has instituted authority. So we have the humility of Christ towards one another that doesn't negate the fact that God has given us specific authorities in our society, in our homes that we are to obey. And under this command, there's three ways in which that looks. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, to your parents. Servants, to your masters. And now we get to the Christ-centered marriage part, the time we've all been waiting for. But I hope you see this continuity through this letter and why it's important. The reason why I find it so important is because in order to have a Christ-centered marriage, you must be filled with the Spirit. You cannot fulfill your role in marriage without being filled with the Spirit. Wives, to submit to your husband the way that God commands you to, you must be filled with the Spirit of God. Husbands, to love your wife the way that you're commanded to, you must be filled with the Spirit of God. Great, what does that mean? In the reform world, we might shy away from this type of language because there are a lot of ways this has been mistranslated and misunderstood throughout history. So, so what does it mean that we are to be filled with the Spirit? It's really simple. To, to be filled with the Spirit basically means to yield to the Spirit of God, to submit to the will of God in your life. So here's a couple of pictures on how this might help. This, what this isn't is when I go before the Lord in prayer, I'm, I'm re-inviting the spirit to, to enter back in because since the last time I prayed, he left, right? So, so come, Holy Spirit, come again. That's, that's not how we are to understand this. Rather, look at it this way. Because the Holy Spirit has already come into the life of every believer, he will not leave, he will not forsake you, he is your helper, sustaining you to glory, right? And Christ said, if anyone loves me, the Father and I will come and make our home in him, right? So that's a guarantee. The Spirit is in the home, in the home of the heart of every believer, but here's the problem is that sometimes within our home, as God is in it, we keep certain doors locked. 
As Seth said last week, we're to bring everything to the light. But there are things in our heart that we say, no, God. Don't touch that. There are doors and chambers that remain locked. To be filled with the Spirit means, God, I'm opening every door. I want you to occupy every chamber of my heart. Fill me to the fullest capacity. And beloved, if there are things you're holding on to, and I know the struggle, today experience the freedom that Christ gives you to present everything in the light and to walk in true liberation, true grace. Open every door that he may have it. What are the doors in your heart this morning that keep the Lord out and prevent you from being truly filled in the spirit? Well, let's get to the wives now. Verses 22 through 24, and husbands, fair warning, if you might feel tempted to throw some elbows and some nudges, I would advise you to refrain from doing that because we are next, and so don't fall victim in that. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, everything to their husbands. The wife is submit to her husband. That is the authority in this context that she's called to submit to. Wives, that doesn't mean, like we said, that you can drive 80 miles an hour down 1488. Doesn't negate the fact that you are also subject to the law. But in the context of marriage, you are called to submit to your husband. And to do this, you must be filled with the Spirit. But there's a couple of, for lack of a better phrase, hurdles that we might need to get through to truly understand what a wife's submission is to look like. And so the first thing that I want us to understand is that submission is not a bad word. It's not a taboo word. But some of you, even as I say it, you might cringe in your seat and think, oh, where's he going with this? Good luck, guy, you're new. Um, no, it's, it's not a bad word. And here's the reason why I say that. It's all over the Bible. This isn't at random in Ephesians, and it would still be sufficient even if it was, but here are a few verses to back it up. And we're not gonna read them all. Colossians 3, 16 through 19 is almost verbatim what we have here in Ephesians 5. Almost verbatim. Titus 2, 5. Here's the different situations. Older wives are called to instruct and to help younger wives and teach them what it means to submit to their husbands. So there's a beautiful context, beautiful relationship of discipleship in the church between older women and younger women. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, another situation. Even if a wife has an unbelieving husband, she is still called to submit to the God-given order in the home. And here's the beautiful thing. The Bible says that as a wife does this, she could possibly win her husband from her pure and respectable conduct towards him. There's reason to hope in that. The second thing, first thing, not a bad word, not a taboo. Second thing is that we have to understand submission has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with order. 
Again, submission has nothing to say about the value about a man and a woman, but has everything to do with God-given order and authority. Here's the reason why. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here's why I say this has nothing to do with value. Because if it did have to do with value, then we would have to assume that the father is more valuable than the son. But we know that nothing could be further from the truth. That the Trinity, within the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're co-equal in majesty, co-equal in glory, each of them fully God, fully deity, but Christ in his humility submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit in humility submits to the Son. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with godly order. And here's another beautiful picture that might help us see this and why this might be a problem since the fall. When we go back into the garden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that God created all things. And then he created the beasts and the creeping things, the crawling things, the things in the sea. He makes Adam on the sixth day and says, you are to exercise dominion over all of this, Adam. There's your authority. God saw it's not good for that boy to be alone. Praise God for that. Gives him Eve as a helpmate. As Matthew Henry uh, says, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be under him, but from the side to be close to his heart, to be loved and cherished by him, under his arm to be protected by him. And so the order from the beginning, God creates Adam Eve, they are to share dominion over beast. Adam, Eve, beast. What happens at the fall? Order gets flipped on its head, no pun intended again. And we see that beast deceives Eve, Eve instructs her husband, and who gets the blame for it all? Adam, Romans five, because of one man's sin. Death came into the world. Not one couple, not one family, one man. And God says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you were there in the garden and you didn't stop the deception from happening, your passivity led to this. And then you listened to your wife. That's not the way I designed this to be, Adam. Completely flipped upside down. And what Paul is calling us to is to restoring this beautiful design that was given before the fall. When you look at this whole thing, think about the restoration of all things in your marriage and the beautiful mantle men that we get to take up. But we'll, we'll get to us here in a little bit. Submission is about order. Listen, a body cannot have two heads, Right? Whatever comes to mind when you think of a two-headed creature is probably spooky and eerie and for Ripley's Believe It or Not, if you remember that show. But biblical complementarianism, biblical complementarianism is a dance between a man and a woman, and it's beautiful. But in a dance, you can only have one leader. 
the moment both try to lead, it's a disaster on the dance floor, right? It's about order. So how are wives to, to, uh, supposed to submit to their husbands? Carrying the verb, hypotasso, this is a voluntary submission. Husbands, you can't arm wrestle her for headship. She must, of her own volition, submit to you. And it says, as unto the Lord, which provides incredible motivation for the wives, that as you submit to your husband, you are simultaneously honoring and glorifying God. What a beautiful encouragement, ladies. And notice here that Paul does not base his argument on societal norms. He's not looking at the culture and saying this is how it's going to be. He's looking at the authority of God's word, how it was from the beginning. This is how it ought to be. This is how it was designed to be. And so let's have some fun here. What, what does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband? What are some practical ways that this can play out? And then let's look at what this does not look like. How this can look, what it shouldn't look like. The positive first. Biblical submission means for a wife to honor and to respect her husband, to have a great heart for what he does in serving and protecting her. Ladies, as you give glory to God for the goodness in your life, as you seek to honor him, so you are to seek to honor your husband for his position in your life. And here's something that you need to understand. God does not need your adoration, but he is fully deserving of it. Your wife or your husband may not always deserve your adoration, no amens, but he's desperately in need of it, in need of your respect to help him along his way. You are also to be his encourager, to champion him in all that he does. As in his role as a husband, as a father, as a leader, as an employee, as a businessman, in whatever he does, champion him on, remembering you are there to help him, to fulfill his role. It's to trust his leadership, though you may question it at times. And when you have opinions about it, in a spirit of humility and gentleness, presenting your case. Talking well of him as appropriate to others, building him up before your family, before your friends, before your coworkers. Praying for him in his respective role daily. I can attest to this, the most encouraging thing you may ever tell your husband is that I respect you for what you do and I'm praying for you. That will put fuel and fire in his bones. Trust me. Now, what does this not look like? First off, I have to say this. It's not blindly following his every wish or desire. Ladies, if your husband ever desires or pushes you to do something that is contrary to the word of God, causing you to sin, I would say that you're not obligated to follow him in that way. If he ever prohibits you from doing something that God commands you to do, I would say you're not obligated to fulfill that. And I would base that off of how we view the law. If the law ever prohibits us from preaching Christ, 
we are to obey God rather than man. If the law ever tells us to do something that causes us to sin against Christ, we are to follow Christ rather than the law of man. Going forward, submitting means not belittling him or manipulating him in any way. It's not trying to usurp his authority to push your agenda. It's not sluggishly or reluctantly following his leadership as he seeks to lead you in the home. It's not waiting for him to fail so that you can say, I told you so. Anyone guilty of that? No hands, great. It's not talking negatively about him to your family, coworkers, friends, prayer circles, but only edifying and building him up. You don't have to lie, but that which is edifying and upbuilding. I thought of a couple of things here of what ladies might want this text to say. A couple of things. Submit to him when he leads in a way that you find acceptable. It's not what it says. Submit to him when he loves you the way that you deserve to be loved. It's not what it says either. There's no condition listed here for your husband to match. Just the authority that God has given him over the home in your marriage. Verse 25 through 30, husbands, we're up. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, husbands, first thing, in order to fulfill your role, you must be filled with the Spirit. And a quick side note, that in ancient Gentile literature, a command like this couldn't be more foreign to men. Men in a Gentile ancient culture were called to exercise their headship, but in a domineering way. I'm a man, I say you do. But they were never, hardly ever commanded to love their wives. This is so foreign to the Ephesian men. Is it foreign to you? And the standard for a husband's love is Christ's. Not domineering, but loving, protecting, nurturing. The relationship isn't that of a master to a servant, but as a lover to his beloved, pursuing her heart, pursuing her emotions, pursuing her thoughts, her dreams, her needs. You are to be a pursuer of her. And some of the many ways that Christ has loved his church are tenderly, patiently, graciously, mercifully, faithfully, 
Gentlemen, remember Job's covenant. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman with lust. You are to be faithfully hers. Now get this. We are the church of God, and within a church you have sinners. And so Christ looking upon us might have much to criticize. Looking at the Ephesians would have much to criticize. Looking at us today would have much to criticize but Christ never submits us to his criticism. Gentlemen, are you a critical man? As I can be. Do you have an eye to find every flaw, to critique your wife, to tear down when you are called to build up? Are you nurturing and loving? Or do you tear her down with your tongue? In a church that's comprised of members that have many weaknesses, shortcomings, failures, that's me, and they're many, Christ doesn't throw them in our face. He doesn't say, you're so this or that. But he looks at us and says, in your weakness, my grace is sufficient. I want to help you as a weaker vessel. I want to aid, I want to give myself to this. And here the main aspect of Christ's love that Paul is calling out that's most clearly demonstrated is that he gave himself up for the church, which says that his love was self-initiated and self-sacrificing, and that's hard, right? It's hard. That's why we must be filled with the Spirit. That kind of love is supernatural. It can't be done in the flesh. If you're trying to do this in the flesh, you can't, you'll fail. And I wanna encourage you with perhaps the most encouraging scripture that I've clung to as a husband. It's found in John chapter two. And I love this story because it's Christ's first miracle. And Christ's first revealing of himself, of who he is, of his glory, is at a wedding. And here, we have a bridegroom. It's in the town of Cana. The town of Cana was a small town. It's thought to have about 200 people, which is about the size of our church. So picture a whole city that is our church. A lot of relatives there. And this groom is called to display the fact that he's ready to provide, to protect, to love his wife. He's supposed to display that to her and everyone around him at this feast. But there's a problem. Halfway through, the wine runs out. He falls short, embarrassingly short. This is a problem. It's stirring up some conversation. Jesus' mom goes to him, run out of wine. And he desires to jump in on the situation, fill six barrels full of wine, which is more than enough than what was needed showing his all-sufficiency as a bridegroom. Wow. And not only that, but it was the best wine saved for last. Gentlemen, are you giving your wife the best wine? Are you giving your family the best wine? 
Are you being filled with the Spirit so that you can lead by His strength and not your own? About a month ago, my wife and I were in this sweet season, man. Things were just clicking. You guys know what that's like when you're not arguing, you're being really gracious towards one another, you're excited, you're happy. And one morning, I'm usually the one up by a little bit. So I was there, I had some free time. We've been sharing a car, so I was gonna take her to work and then have the car the rest of the day. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna pack her lunch. She doesn't gotta pack her lunch today. I'm gonna do it. You know what? I'm gonna pack her breakfast too so she can have a great day. You know what? She's pregnant, she's got a sweet tooth. And so I'm gonna pack her some cookies. And I was throwing everything I could just to show her, I love you, I'm thinking about you. I know what you like, right? So I drop her off at work. I get a picture with a crying face emoji of everything laid out on her desk, and she felt loved, and she made that known to me. And I'm driving, I'm like, yeah, I did it. I'm rocking this thing. A few hours later, at dinner, the Lord would humble me because we would have an argument that I swear it was so dumb that it, it, it was several weeks before I could remember what it was about. But in the midst of that argument at dinner, I'm frustrated. I can't be in the same room. I gotta go to the gym. I gotta work this out. Didn't help. I came home. I'm still not ready to reconcile. Goes through the night, and I'm feeling the conviction. I'm feeling in me, you're, you're supposed to die. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. This is really hard, man. No, she needs to come to me. She needs to initiate this reconciliation. I've been pretty good through this. Carries through the next morning. I'm in the kitchen, and I literally say this to myself. I ain't packing her breakfast. She could pack her own breakfast. I'm not packing her lunch. She could pack her own lunch. In fact, I sat down on the couch, I'm pretty sure, on my phone looking at baseball news to show that I chose to use my free time for me, not you. Later on that afternoon, hit me so hard, broke me so hard. Christ never loved me that way. When I fall, when I stumble, when I sin against him, he pursues me. He is the first to initiate love. He is the first to initiate reconciliation. Men, that's what we are called to be. I know what it's like. I, she's coming through the room. Is she going to bring it up? No, that's your job. As Christ loved the church, it's hard. You must die. That's the point. So maybe your situation wasn't packing a lunch, but maybe you've been on a date, and on that date, you're opening the car door like you used to. She drops something, and you're picking it up, but then something happens. You walk into the car, and you think, I ain't getting her door. I'm not picking that up. She'd get her own door. In fact, she's on a curb, and there's some landscaping. It's really more trouble than it's worth, so I ain't getting her door. Have you been there? You all have, I'm sure. Gentlemen, we must die so that Christ may live in us. And this is a beautiful thing that we've been called to, to emulate, to be a walking, living example of Christ in our home 
daily. And to do that, you must be filled with the Spirit. Let's move a little bit quicker through this. Verse 26, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. I mean, you are called to play a vital role in your wife's sanctification. You are not her savior, Christ is. You are called to play a vital role in her sanctification. And one of the easiest ways you can do this is read your Bible with her and pray. Doesn't have to be long, but make it a habit. And see where the Lord may lead you in your leadership in the home. Question, I have to ask myself this, and it's embarrassing sometimes. Is my wife godlier for my leadership? That's the standard. That's how we will be judged. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This talk of without spot, without blemish is referring to the outward beauty of a, of a young bride, but it's symbolic to the spiritual understanding that represents the church moral cleansing and her excellence? Are you playing a part in the sanctification of your wife? And then finally, this all comes to a head, verses 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's where we see that marriage is about way more than just our union with our bride or your union with your husband. It's about so much more. Remember, God did not say that this is to, that his love for the son is to reflect marriage because he created our union first. No, the union between Christ and his bride is before the foundation of the world. He is the lamb who was slain before creation. And so he made our marriage, our union to represent that. It's about way more than just this momentary union that we enjoy. It isn't a forever thing. My marriage to my wife isn't a forever thing. It's pointing to a forever thing, but it's momentary, and that hurts me sometimes. I, I love holding my wife's hand, and I hate to think of ever not being able to. It gets me emotional, start crying for no reason to her. But in glory, we will not be married. And in glory, it probably won't matter much to me because we will be one with Christ, his church, we will all be one with him. In closing, remember this in your marriage, men. You must be filled with the Spirit. Wives, you must be filled with the Spirit. And this is applicable, applicable for everybody here. If you're single, you must be filled with the Spirit. If you've come from brokenness, you were once married, you're not. You still, you must be filled with the Spirit. This isn't a means to an ultimate thing. Marriage is not a means to an ultimate thing. You don't have to be married, but as you're seeking a spouse, have these qualities before you. Pray before the Lord that you would become this 
and that you would find someone that emulates these characteristics. Remember this, the greatest need of a wife is, is love. That's her greatest need. The greatest need of a man is respect. Incredible book, Love and Respect, if you have not read it. This is built into the way that God has beautifully designed it to be. Remember this, our takeaway. Your marriage is pointing to a bigger story than just you. It's Christ's love for his church. And to mirror Christ's love and to have a Christ-centered marriage, you must be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray.